Good brothers and sisters, please turn to Luke chapter 2, beginning at uh, verse 22 on page 857 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, I'm going to read down through verse 52 on page 858. Would you please stand? When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanael, and of the tribe of Israel, of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you'd please send the same spirit that heartened uh, Simeon, the same spirit that moved your servant Luke to write these words. May that same spirit, Father, now open our ears and our hearts and give us grace that we might hear your voice for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please keep the Bible open there to uh, Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at that passage again and then doing a few cross-references, so it'd be good to have it open in front of you. Um, as we get started, I want to once again wish you a very happy new year. Uh, this is the second day of 2022. Get used to writing 2022. Uh, it'll take me about six months. Uh, maybe you're faster study than me, but it's a new year full of new opportunities. We've got a congregational meeting coming up in just a few weeks, and we'll be thinking about what God might be calling us to do as we give him thanks for what he did last year. We'll be praying for his blessing upon us in this new year of grace. So happy, happy new year. Of course, once again, Merry Christmas. Today is the second Sunday and the ninth day of Christmas. Anybody remember the song, uh, 12 Days of Christmas? What, what happens on the, on the ninth day? Ladies dancing. So ladies, uh, this, is, this is a day of celebration. Uh, it's a wonderful day as we continue to celebrate the birth of Christ, the Incarnation. Well, it's, it's, an, it's uh, the day after another special day that may be a lot less familiar. Happy Feast of the Circumcision of Christ. January 1st of every year has been set aside for centuries since the year 400. January 1st has been set aside as a feast day for the circumcision of Christ. It's always the eighth day of Christmas. Why? Because of Luke chapter 2. And according to the Jewish law, it was on the eighth day when every little Jewish boy was taken and circumcised. And on that day, the Lord Jesus, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 21, uh, the Lord Jesus continued his identification with Israel by receiving upon his own body the mark of the covenant. And he lived his whole life with that mark of the covenant on his body. So the incarnation of Christ becomes very human, very fleshly, very quickly. Uh, the blood of birth, the blood of circumcision, uh, the first week of Jesus' life uh, pointed towards what he came in the world to do. Uh, that requirement for uh, the circumcision of a little Jewish boy is found in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, and other places. But in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, it's also connected to what we're going to look at today. Because in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, there's the requirement of circumcision for little Jewish boys. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 4, the very next verse, uh, sets aside the 33 days after the birth of a boy son, a boy child, 
the woman was at the end of that period of time supposed to make a special sacrifice of what was called purification. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we read that is exactly what's happening. Once again, Jesus in his flesh identifies himself with Israel. And so in verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And once again, there's a little parenthesis, Luke perhaps quoting the law for people who didn't really know the law. So he's quoting it here, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. What's being described here in these verses is Leviticus chapter 12, verse 4. Exactly. Uh, Mary and Joseph, both parents are there and they make a sacrifice to the Lord. It was called a a sacrifice of purification. Uh, It's a sin offering specifically for the woman. It's not for the child, it's for the woman. And that, that comes to my mind when I read different Uh, Catholic theologians talking about the sinlessness of Mary. Well, Mary presented a sacrifice for her sins. And it specifically stated that she sacrificed two turtle doves. Of course, we sing about that on the second day of Christmas, don't we? Uh, Two turtle doves. Well, uh, Mary sacrificed two turtle doves. And in Leviticus chapter 12, uh, sorry, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse um, for that is allowed for the very poor. Everybody else is supposed to bring a lamb and a, and a dove or a pigeon, but the very poor were allowed to bring a humbler sacrifice and present it to the Lord in this ritual of purification. And so Mary, once again, uh, comes in humble submission. Uh, she comes and she offers the humble sacrifice to the Lord. All of it pointing towards Jesus' identification with his people. Jesus really entering the gritty world that Mary and Joseph lived in and that you and I live in today. He actually entered this world of woe and sin and blood and all the realities that we still know about two millennia later. Well, I want us to look at three different things in this passage Uh, The first I've called waiting for the consolation of of Israel, uh, which we'll look at. Then two illustrations of that. And then finally, I'd like for us to look at a few verses that help us understand this idea of a temple, which is a little bit foreign to us in 21st century Carrollton, Texas. We'll have to think a little bit to understand the significance of the temple. But let's think for a moment about the consolation of Israel and specifically waiting for it. If you look at... uh, Uh, at verse 25. We're going to look more at this man Simeon in a moment, but we read here at the end of verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What was he waiting on? The consolation, that word translated consolation is sometimes translated comfort. Sometimes it's translated encouragement. Uh, The idea is uh, Simeon, who we're going to read about later, represents that part of Israel in the midst of a sinful world that was waiting on God to do something, 
to console them, to comfort them, to encourage them, fulfilling a promise that he had made. And so they, Simeon representing them, wait on this fulfilled promise. It's actually a thing that runs right through these first couple of chapters of Luke. Jesus' birth does not come in a vacuum. Jesus' birth comes in the context of a God who's been working in the world from the very beginning, who has made promises, has entered into covenants, and is in the process of fulfilling those promises, keeping that covenant. And we won't understand Jesus. We won't understand what's going on in Luke chapter 1 and 2 or the rest of the Gospel of Luke or the rest of the New Testament if we don't actually realize there were those waiting for God to do these things. Waiting on God to fulfill everything that he had promised in the Old Testament. And God had promised to be with his people Israel. Uh, There are hints of that promise all the way back in the beginning chapters of Genesis. It becomes very specific in God's promises to Abraham. We see it again and again in God's promise to Moses and then God's promise to David. And then finally, if you flip back just a few pages, literally a few pages, to Malachi, the very last chapter of, sorry, the very last book of the Old Testament. If you look at chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, here's the last prophetic word written down in the Old Testament where God is making a promise. You'll notice the quotation marks. This is God speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. We've read those words already. John the Baptist, the angel promised, was actually the fulfillment of that verse. John the Baptist was actually called to be, was actually conceived to be, and would be born to be the fulfillment of the promise of a coming messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord, who will prepare the way before me. Malachi writes, centuries before Jesus. And so there were those like Simeon who waited on this messenger who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. And then look at the very next sentence in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So Simeon represents Israel waiting longing for the day when God's messenger would come and when the Lord himself will come suddenly, where? To his temple. So there was this community within the life of Israel. There were many people, we're not told how many, but there was Simeon, there was Anna, who we'll read about later, there were others who were waiting, longing for the day, looking with hope towards the day when God would keep his promise. Flip back to Luke chapter 2. That's the context of what we read about in the birth of Jesus. Everything that happens in these first two chapters, everything that is described is built around that hopeful expectation, that waiting. That's why we keep the season of Advent. It's a season to reflect on our still waiting, on the ultimate fulfillment, of all those promises. Because the ultimate fulfillment is still ahead. It's described in the book of Revelation. And 
we here at Metrocrest are among those who still wait on the perfect fulfillment, the perfect completion, the perfect consolation that God has promised, the comfort and encouragement that the Old Testament and the New Testament speak to. We're in the, the, the now and not yet, the fulfillment of Christ's birth, the promise of his coming again in what? Glory. So that's where we live too. And uh, so this whole set setting is the context of waiting for consolation. Uh, waiting happens a lot during Christmas. Uh, I remember my own kids when they were little uh, looking forward to Christmas morning. Maybe you can remember that. Maybe you've experienced that this year. Uh, it's a wonderful thing watching kids expecting Christmas, waiting with excitement. My, I have a middle son, John, who got up at 3 o'clock a.m. one year. Uh, he was so excited he got at 3 o'clock a.m. on Christmas morning to go and wait on Santa. And he went out into the living room, and he couldn't look at the presents, but he was there waiting. And my other kids got very irritated with him for getting up at 3 a.m. to go and wait. But that's the kind of thing that we do when we're very excited, we're very hopeful, we're very much expecting, we're very much waiting. And every little one in this room knows what it's like to wait on Christmas morning. Well, that's the setting for Israel. Grown up, a grown up waiting, a grown up excitement, a grown up longing, tempered with several centuries. <laughs> several centuries of waiting waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises in the midst of a world that is sinful and broken and violent and full of bloodshed and hardship, waiting, waiting, waiting. That's the consolation that Simeon awaited. That's the consolation that God's faithful covenant people awaited. They awaited the comfort, the coming of God himself. So there was excitement. There was also also, bittersweet uncertainty. They, they, they had waited and waited and waited, uh, and yet they still waited with hope. That's, uh, that's what's happening here. They're waiting on the consolation of Israel. And there are two illustrations given of this. Uh, one is Simeon, verses 25 to 35, and the second is a woman named Anna, in verses 36 to 38. Now, Simeon, we really know only a few things about him. He was righteous and devout. Those are the same adjectives used to describe, if you remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth back in uh, Luke chapter 1. They were also righteous and devout. Well, Simeon was also like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Perhaps Zechariah and Elizabeth, I imagine they were, part of that waiting group, that waiting community. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Elizabeth waiting with more hope and faithfulness. Zechariah caught up in the uncertainty. But still part of that group that was waiting, hoping. And Simeon was like them, righteous and devout. Verse 25 says the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Uh, I think that's the first reference to the Holy Spirit here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Holy Spirit was here in a powerful way upon, with the first reference of the Holy Spirit being on a person, not Jesus. Uh, 
the Holy Spirit was here with uh, Simeon as he waited. And in verse 26, the Holy Spirit specifically reveals to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is, the Lord's Messiah. We're not told his age, but in my head, someone who's sort of waiting on death, waiting on, on uh, the fulfillment of a promise before he dies, sort of suggests to me he might, like Anna, also be elderly. But we're not really specifically told. We just know he's gotten this promise by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had actually seen the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. And so no surprise, Simeon is is actually in the temple, it says in verse 27. He came in the spirit into the temple. And what a sight. This little baby, just, uh, what is it, 40 days old, is brought into the temple in verse 27. uh, And they come to do according to the custom of the law. And he actually sees this baby. And the Holy Spirit reveals to him that this baby is the baby. This baby is the Lord himself coming into the world. Did he understand fully all that that meant? I'm sure he didn't. But the Holy Spirit revealed enough to him that he knew this was that baby that Israel had been waiting on. And what did he do? It's a beautiful picture. I I love as an older person, as an older man, a grandfatherly person. I love the picture. It says in verse 28, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God. Now, I can relate with that picture. <laughs> there is nothing I enjoy and delight in more than being able to pick up one of my grandkids. Mary Jane's little enough. I can, I can literally do this. I can take her in my arms And I can look into her face and I can bless God for her and for his faithfulness to me and Leslie over many years. And that's the picture I get here of Simeon. When he sees the the child Jesus, when he sees this baby brought at just a a month old to be presented to the Lord in fulfillment of, in in completion of the requirement of the law, the custom of the law, And he sees this baby and his heart overflows. He takes the baby in his arms. He he holds the baby and he blesses God for his faithfulness. And he does it as often happens in Luke in a song. A beautiful song. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. Christians have sung it for centuries and centuries and centuries. In fact, it's a regular part of the service of evening prayer. Christians all around the world will be singing this song tonight. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I wish I could compose so beautifully so quickly. (laughs) I imagine he'd been rehearsing these words. Uh, For one thing, he quotes several passages of Scripture. He doesn't make this up from whole cloth. He's actually singing a hymn that is based on the promises of the Old Testament. There are references, allusions drawn from the Bible. 
and he, he, he is led by the Spirit to put into words, and he sings it. And it's interesting the way he's looking at it. Like I said, he, we're not told he perfectly understood every aspect of the incarnation. But what we are told is that from his heart, he sings this hymn of praise, this hymn of joy. And he focuses on salvation. Whatever that meant to him, he knew that when he saw this baby, this child, this child represented salvation. This child represented the salvation that God promised. And it was a, a salvation that God had prepared. And notice how he describes it. In the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. This baby was light and glory. I like that expression so much. I, I called this morning's servant, uh, sermon light and glory. Simeon gives voice to this waiting community, this group of people longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. This baby is light and glory. Light for revelation to the Gentiles. It was through this baby, Simeon knew. He didn't fully understand it, I'm sure. But he sang about it, that in this baby, fulfilling the promises specifically in the prophet Isaiah, this baby would be a light for revelation to the nations. That's the Greek word for Gentiles. The nations, the ethnos. The, uh, this, this baby would be a light for all the peoples, all the nations. So it's interesting. Here at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, there are these hints that Jesus came not only to fulfill the promise to Israel, but to fulfill the promise to the whole world through Israel. That this child was born to be revelation to the nations as well as glory for Israel. You see, in, in Christ's coming, in the fulfillment of Christ's birth, he, God not only keeps his promise to Israel, but he also shows, as has always been the case, Israel exists for the world, for the nations. God's covenant people, old and new, exist for the nations, for the world. We've never been a group of people who existed only for ourselves. We have always been a group of people who exist for others. And Israel, when it got it right, remembered that. And when it got it wrong, it went very, very wrong. It got very confused. It became caught up in legalism. It got caught up in self-righteousness. It got caught up in all kinds of unhealthy ethnic pride. It got caught up in all kinds of sinful, broken behavior, and it often led to bloodshed. Their, their self-absorption. But when they turned outward, when they looked at the needy world, when they looked at the darkness all around them, and realized that they were called to be the instrument of light, well, that's when they'd begin to get it right again. That's when they'd turn in the direction that God had always been calling them and had always been moving. So Simeon is one in that long line of covenant people who was longing for the day when God would keep his promise to Israel by bringing light to the world. 
Simeon was one in that long line of people that I hope will include you and me. I mean, Simeon's a reminder, isn't he, as we gather in worship today. He was in, in, there in the, in the temple. And as we gather today, it's helpful to remember that we do not exist for ourselves. We are a mission people. It is our joy, our glory to be God's mission people here in North Carrollton, here in Texas, here in the United States, reaching out as God gives us opportunity to the whole world. I mean, it's amazing to me that our little church is involved in God's work on the other side of the globe. It's humble, it's small, but it's amazing. It's breathtaking to me, really, that we get to be the part of the glory of Israel and God's precious, life-giving light to the world. That's a blessing. And Simeon was filled with joy. He sings with, with amazement about it. Verse 33, his father, this is Jesus' father and his mother. You know, the people wonder about Joseph. Well, Joseph was on the front row for all of this. Joseph wasn't an absentee father. He's in the middle of this. He was there. He marveled with Mary at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's looking back again at Malachi. For a sign that is opposed. And then this verse 35. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. A little hint here at the very beginning of the gospel that the end of this story is going to involve a sword. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve, involve more blood, more hardship. This sword that would pierce Jesus would pierce Mary also and I mean, any mother in the room understands you suffer right along with your kids, don't you? Well, Mary was being told a month in, this baby's going to have a hard life and it's going to be a hard time for you as well. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So the Holy Spirit revealed all this to Simeon, and he sang about it. It's been written in the Bible for two millennia. We're still seeing it being lived out. We're still seeing the promise of Christmas, the promise of Christ's ministry, which we'll read about in the pages of Luke, the promise of Christ's uh, death on the cross, where he himself was pierced, his mother among the witnesses around the cross who saw it all. And thoughts are still being revealed. You see, the, the person, the work, the incarnation of Christ and how we respond to Christ reveals every heart. It reveals what all of us are actually made of, how we respond to Christ and specifically to Christ's death reveals a lot about us to this day. Still being lived out. How we respond to these things tells our hearts. And so, we have this first illustration, Simeon. 
Praise God for Simeon. I, I like to think of him as a granddaddy. I'll call him Granddaddy Simeon. Well, uh, verse 36 introduces us to Grana Anna. Uh, she was a prophetess. We're told a little bit about Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel. She was of the tribe of Asher. That is, she had her pedigree. She was a, an established member of God's covenant community. Apparently, also one of those waiting. It says she was advanced in years. In fact, it says, having lived with her husband just seven years when she was a virgin like Mary had been, then as a widow, she lived another 84 years. So it's um, at this point in human history, this is, this is really old. She was 84 years old. She lived a long life, waiting, hoping, longing. It says, in fact, that Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping, fasting, praying night and day. Well, I get very choked up thinking about Grandma Anna waiting there in the temple. There's no mention of children. Suggestion is perhaps she died as a widow without children. And as we've said before, in the ancient world, a widow without children was in a very desperate situation. So she lived really just depending on the Lord day to day. We're not told the details of all that. But we are told she she was there in the temple every day doing what God's people do. She was worshiping, she was fasting, and she was praying night and day. Now, it's intriguing. She was a prophetess. There aren't many people, many women called prophetesses, but Anna was a prophetess, according to the Bible. She had been given a gift of discernment. Apparently, she would speak about it. She would, she would bring what God had given her and share it with others. And that's basically what she does here in in verse 38. She lives out her gifting. Coming up at that very hour, apparently she also sees Jesus, maybe in the hands of granddaddy Simeon. But she sees the baby, or she comes in at that hour, presumably seeing the baby, and she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting For the redemption of Jerusalem. That's really just another way of putting the consolation of Israel. The redemption of Jerusalem equals the consolation of Israel. They were the same idea. This idea of God fulfilling his promise. Comforting, consoling Israel. Bringing redemption to Jerusalem. The capital of Israel. Anna's response is is beautiful. Uh, We're not told her song. Maybe it's more spontaneous. But uh, like Simeon, Anna also gives thanks to God, and she also speaks of Jesus. And she speaks specifically to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been filled with people, generally, and the temple would be filled with people. And there is Anna, in the middle of it all, speaking of Jesus 
and the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, uh, I think uh, Granddaddy Simeon and Grandma Anna give us a really beautiful picture of the waiting community giving voice to what God has done. It, it underscores the humility and the, the, uh, the, the vulnerability as well as the hope and the joy. Maybe it's because I'm getting more and more and more into being Granddaddy Bill, but I relate to Simeon, and I, I can relate to Grandma, I, and I, I can understand and, and how it just wells up within them. It's a beautiful picture. This waiting for the consolation of Israel, two breathtaking illustrations, two breathtaking examples Simeon and Anna. Praise God for Simeon and Anna. You know, one of these days, Colin, I, I hope you'll do a setting of the Nook Dimittis. I think you've made a Gloria. I'd love to hear, now let thy servant depart in peace. What a beautiful, beautiful thing for God's people to see, to sing. Well, in verse 39, it says, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. I don't know if you're paying close attention, but Right through this passage, over and over again, there's this refrain. The law of the Lord, the custom of the Lord, the the law of Moses. Everything that's being described here in this chapter is pointing towards Mary and Joseph and Jesus fulfilling, complying with everything in the law. There's great significance to that. There's a reason Luke records it. We'll see about that in a moment, but it's, it's recorded in great detail. And pay attention to that little refrain, the law of the Lord. And they returned, it says in verse 39, to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, a little wide spot in the road. There's no archaeology in Nazareth because there was never anything in Nazareth. It's just bare virtually. But in verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus growing up. Just one verse. I can tell you, looking at the kids in our church, looking at the kids in my house growing up, and that verse sums up years and years of experience. But it's, it's the reality of Jesus' human life. He grew. He became wise. He became strong. And he grew in favor with God And that's written down for you and me today. And then in verse 41, as I wrap up, I want to just spend a minute thinking about the temple. It says that Jesus went with his parents to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Actually, it doesn't say he went. It says his parents went. They could have left him behind in Nazareth. But sort of the thought is the family went every year at the Feast of the Passover. In verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Why were they in Jerusalem? Because according to the law of the Lord, Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Whenever possible, they were supposed to go and make this pilgrimage. Well, Jesus' parents, plural, at the age of 12, Joseph was still around. And Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem with Jesus. Why? Because in the law, a 12-year-old boy was supposed to be presented to the Lord as a man. It, it, was, his, it was the first century equivalent of a bar mitzvah. 
That still happens in the Jewish community. Well, here in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah. You know a Jewish family that has a bar mitzvah? They're doing something similar to what happens here in Luke chapter 2. But something unusual happens. I mean, this is a very, very unusual story. Uh, it says that when the feast was ended, they head back to Nazareth. They went apparently with a group of people. It was big enough, a group of people, that they didn't keep track of little Jesus who was running around with all the other children. I can understand that when I see kids running around here at church. Well, they were, they were going, making their way to, Jerusalem, to Nazareth, and they went a full day before they noticed that Jesus wasn't with the crowd of kids. And they actually went back to Jerusalem and they realized they polled the other members of the party. They talked to the other friends and acquaintances, the relatives who were there. Jesus was nowhere to be found, so they go back to Jerusalem. They look for him for three days. Boy, I, I think I'd have given my kids a talking to about this one. Um, but they go and they, they finally go, of all places, to the temple. They go to the temple. And what do they find Jesus doing? He's there at age 12, and he's talking to the teachers of the law. He's listening to them. He's asking questions, and they're asking him questions. And it says, Luke records, that they marveled at his answers. A 12-year-old. Well, no wonder it says uh, that in verse 51... Mary treasured up these things in her heart. I know that would have gone in my baby book. <laughs> Found my son in the temple teaching the teachers of the law. And they were amazed. Exclamation point. You know, all these stories in Luke chapter 1 and 2, most of them only show up here. This is the only record of Jesus going and teaching the teachers of the law. Why? Because no one else knew about it but Mary and handful of other people and these are this is her baby book about this baby that we're worshiping this treasured fact about him and what was he doing as he was teaching the law well he understood it that by teaching the law in the temple he was actually in his father's house he was doing his father's work you know i think teaching the bible teaching the scriptures that's what Jesus did. That's what he did nine to five. He, he worked miracles. He uh, helped the poor. He did all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things that are recorded for us. But what he mainly came to do, what he came to do in his nine to five, 30 years, was he taught the Bible. That's what he was doing in the temple. He did that until he was 30 years of age. And when he walked with his disciples, that's what he was doing to them. He was teaching them. He was teaching them and answering their questions. And he shows it at age 12 in the second chapter of the gospel. And the rest of the gospel of Luke shows him continuing to do that. In fact, in chapter 20, verse 1, we hear this word, temple what's Jesus doing in the temple in Luke chapter 20 verse 1 he was teaching the people look at Luke chapter 21 verse 37 it says he was every day in the temple teaching the Bible chapter 21 verse 38 early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him teaching 
That was Jesus' nine-to-five job. He was a teacher. He taught. And he illustrated his teaching with miracles. He illustrated his teaching with showing acts of love and mercy on the people who came to him. He did all kinds of things to illustrate his teaching, but he came to teach. And his disciples were called to learn. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're called to learn from him his teaching delivered through the prophets, through the apostles, through the disciples, and what we're doing right now. We're called to learn, and then as we learn, we do. What a great way to start 2022, to think about that. That's what we're doing as disciples. We're learning so that we can do what Jesus did. We're learning so that we can, well, we can be a part of the light to the nations. Next Sunday is Epiphany Sunday 1. Epiphany is January 6th every year. It's the day after the 12th day of Christmas every year. January 6th is always Epiphany. And on that day, we remember what? The coming of the wise men, the Gentiles from Matthew's gospel. What a great way to lead into the season of mission to be thinking about what Jesus teaches his people to do and what you and I are called to do today. When you leave this room, you will leave as a disciple called to be part of Jesus' ministry of bringing the glory of uh, the people Israel and the fulfillment of the light to the nations. That is our calling. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, I've had a great Advent and Christmas. I hope you have. And as we begin this new year, my prayer is that we will learn from Jesus. We will learn what the temple was always intended to be. It was never about a building. It was always about a person, God himself, who eventually perfectly revealed himself through Christ, who has come into the world. The temple is long gone. The temple was torn down in the first century A.D. But guess what? The temple is you and me. The temple is Jesus. We're the temple built around the temple. He's the temple. The temple was always pointing to a person. And that person is Christ.